in my dresser at home, there is a gold Rolex watch. Uh, you never see me wear it. My, my dad gave it to me many years ago. Uh, he loved it. He was really pleased with this present. I, I really loved it. Uh, but there's always been something about it that, I don't know, it just didn't sit quite right with me. I'm not sure what it was. I mean, my dad, you don't know my dad, but my dad can afford to give me a Rolex watch, so that, that wasn't a problem. Uh, and he sure was proud of it. I, maybe it was the packaging. I'm not sure. There was something about it that didn't sit right with me. Eventually, I had to uh, take it into the jeweler for repair, and my suspicion was confirmed. It wasn't a Rolex. It was a very expensive imitation Rolex. So good that it really would take a jeweler to spot it. And that's what happened. A jeweler spotted it. Kind of, they were kind of embarrassed to tell me. So I tried to set them at ease saying, you know, I kind of always thought so, but I wasn't sure, and it's good to have my suspicions confirmed. Now, I, I don't know if my dad knew or not, and I have never asked him. I never intend to ask him, and I'm pretty confident he's not going to listen to the podcast. <laughs> but Dad, if you're listening, I still love the watch. Caveat emptor, buyer beware, right? That's, that's the consumer's motto, and my, my story kind of illustrates that, isn't it? In a world of knockoffs, how can I be sure? In, in a world of very good knockoffs, of really fine imitation, how can I be sure? You know, long before authenticity became a buzzword, the need to assure the consumer was a prime concern of American business. And you could hear it in their taglines. Coke, the real thing, right? Genuine Levi's. Pure ivory soap. We, we want to know. We want to know. We want to be assured as consumers that we're not being deceived, that that we're actually getting what we paid for. Now, if that's important for your jeans and your soda, how much more important is that for God? You know, Christianity claims to bring you into a relationship with God. But, but how can you know? How can you be certain that, that this relationship is, is the genuine article? This winter and on into spring, we're going to be considering authentic Christianity, the the genuine article. And we're going to use the Apostle John's first letter, 1 John, to do this. And and we can do this because this actually isn't a new question. Toward the end of the first century, the, the churches that John wrote to were being offered alternative brands of faith. Some of them were cheap imitation knockoffs. Some of them were very, very expensive, fine, hard to tell the difference imitations. John wrote because he wanted them to be certain of what authentic Christianity was, and actually he wanted them to be certain of whether or not they were authentic Christians. And actually, we want the same thing, don't we? So turn with me, if you would, to 1 John chapter 1. 
1 John chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that's found on page 1,898, 1,898, 1 John chapter 1. I'm going to read just the first four verses, just the first four verses. And for those of you that have been coming on uh, to, to Henson for, for quite some time, um, you know, surprise. It turns out I can, I can do sermons on just a few verses as well as, you know, m- multiple chapter lengths as well. So First John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, this is an unusual letter compared to all the other letters in in the New Testament. There's no greeting at the beginning of the letter, like normally there would be in in a a letter written at this time in the Greco-Roman world, no greeting that identifies the author or the the recipient. But there's almost no doubt that this letter was, in fact, written by the Apostle John, the same guy that wrote John's gospel, and he wrote it to a church or, or at least churches, probably in Asia Minor, that were dealing with false teaching. There's almost no doubt that that's the case. And and if you're interested in the evidence for that, talk to me at the door afterwards. Happy, happy to show that to you. It's also, though, an unusual letter because of its style. John is going to circle and circle and circle. He is not like Paul. Paul writes a linear argument. John doesn't do that. John's got a few set of ideas, and he's going to come back to them again and again and again. And some of you love that. And some of you, it's going to drive you crazy. Well, there, there it is. That, that's John's style. In this opening paragraph, though, John is quite, quite clear. He, he wants us to know what the entire letter is about. That's really what these first four verses are doing. What the letter is about and, and why he's written it. And, and I would sum it up in a single sentence. And you'll want to write this sentence down, especially if you're taking notes, because this is the outline. Right? Here's what the whole letter really is about. Authentic Christianity is a message about Jesus that brings us into fellowship with God for our joy. Authentic Christianity is a message about Jesus that brings us into fellowship with God for our joy. Now, I'm going to unpack that sentence in a sermon that's only on four verses, but has five points, all right? First, authentic Christianity is a message. It's a message. John begins by saying that he has something to proclaim. This we proclaim, verse 1. And and it's not just him. You you saw there he uses the language of we. We proclaim something. He's referring to, to, to the band of apostles. This isn't just his message. Together with the rest of the apostles, John has witnessed something. They've witnessed something with their eyes. They've they've heard something with their ears, he says. They've they've touched something with their hands. In other words, the message that he proclaims is is that of eyewitness testimony. 
It's actually the word he uses there in, in, in verse 2. He, he's, he's testifying to something. Now, fundamentally, that means that Christianity is not a matter of philosophy. It's not a matter even of religious experience. Christianity is, is the sort of objective historical reality that, that somebody could testify about in a court of law, that somebody could describe and explain in a history class. But now we all know that, that eyewitness testimony, even eyewitness testimony, comes from one person's perspective. It's, it's, it's kind of inescapably personal. So John uses another word to describe his testimony. When he says that he and the other apostles proclaim something, he actually doesn't use the word preach, which is what I'm doing now. No, no he, uses, he uses a different word, a word that means to report from the perspective of the source of the message, the, the source of, of the, one, the, the one who's sending the message. In other words, even though he's, he's testifying about his own experience, what he's seen, what his hands have touched, what he's heard, he's also been commissioned. He's been authorized to speak this message by the person that the message is from. And friends, this is where we have to start with authentic Christianity. It's not a religion, at least not in the sense that we usually use that word. You see, a religion is is a set of beliefs about God and the supernatural, and those beliefs are typically institutionalized socially in a set of, of rituals or, or, or practices, but, but there is no requirement for something to be a religion that, that it be grounded in history. You can have a perfectly good religion that you just kind of make up and express mythologically. Lots of people have done that. But not Christianity. You, you see, prior to belief, prior to, to Christian ritual or, or Christian practice, there is an authoritative eyewitness testimony, a message about something that can be described in history. And if that message is false, well, then the whole thing falls apart and you should go look somewhere else for your moral principles and your guides to living. But if that message is true, well, then Christianity is not a matter of personal preference. It's not a matter of religious style or taste. It has the same sort of objective claim on every human being, the same way that gravity does, because it is a truth that is outside of us that makes a claim on us. Now, as a church, this is why we devote so much time to preaching and teaching the Bible. It's why we encourage you constantly in your own individual life as a Christian, spend time in the Bible. Spend time in this message. This message is not a record of other people's religious experiences. It's an authoritative eyewitness message that has been commissioned from God. And so the Bible and the Bible alone is our standard for what an authentic relationship with God looks like whether we're thinking about that relationship individually or whether we're thinking about it corporately together as a church. Authentic Christianity is an apostolic message, authoritative and historical. Second, it's a message 
about Jesus. Now, John doesn't mention Jesus until we finally get down to to verse 3, really the end of verse 3. But that's where he's been heading from the opening words of verse 1. He he starts by saying, that which was from the beginning is the very thing that the apostles were eyewitnesses to or are testifying to. Now, that phrase, from the beginning, that which was from the beginning, that doesn't mean from the beginning of time. That doesn't mean from the beginning of the gospel or Christianity. It certainly doesn't mean uh, from, from the beginning of, of creation, like he's referring to the very first thing created. Th- this, this phrase that he uses, from the beginning, is, is the same phrase that the prophet Habakkuk used in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 12, to describe God who has no beginning. O oh Lord, are you not from the beginning? That, that is to say, from, from everlasting. You, you were already there when the beginning began the phrase that John is using here. Micah, the prophet Micah, uses the same phrase to describe the promised Messiah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, you can go look that up later. Now, how could the apostles have been eyewitnesses to the eternal God, you know, the one who was already there when when the beginning began? Well, Well, he tells us that the answer, the way they could be eyewitnesses to that which was from the beginning is the incarnation. Verse 2, the life appeared. The life, the the eternal life, the divine life showed up in time and history. That that, that divine and eternal life that was with the Father from the beginning, we heard about that in John chapter 1 earlier in the service, that that life that has been there from the beginning revealed itself in history in flesh and blood, in the person of Jesus Christ. You you understand that this is what the message of Christianity is all about, that the eternal Son of God, fully God, God in every way that God is God, came and took on human flesh and became fully man, fully fully human, human in every sense that you and I are human accepting sin. This is what the message of Christianity is all about. Not that that human beings made a religious discovery and stumbled across God, but that God took the initiative and revealed himself to us in the historical person of Jesus of Nazareth. Authentic Christianity is uncompromising on this point. In answer to the question, who is Jesus, authentic Christianity says, God in the flesh. Fully God, for only God has eternal life. Fully human, someone who can be known and touched and heard and seen. This is what our message is about. It's not a message about morals, though morals will come. It's not even a message about purpose. Though certainly if you know this God, you will have an extraordinary purpose in your life. But no, that's not really what our message is about. Not morals, not purpose, but a person who is life itself. Now, I don't know why you're here this morning. There are lots of reasons that people come to church on a Sunday morning. But if you've come to church because you think maybe church has something to do with life, real life, as God intended it, then you're right. 
Do you want to know life? Do you want to have life? Do you want to experience life? Friends, don't look at the glossy ads, which are just selling you a bill of goods. Look at Jesus, because He is life. He is eternal life. And though He was from the beginning, though He is fully God, and so in, in his essence, actually invisible. I mean, we, we couldn't see him simply as the second person of the Trinity. He has taken the initiative to make himself visible. You can see him. And so you can know what life is. If you would like to know more about Jesus, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer, and, and you'd like to to get a better sight of this Jesus. We have, we have a Bible study that we'd love to do with you. We can do it one-on-one. We could do it in a small group. It's called Christianity Explained. And for most of that Bible study, we walk through Mark's gospel, and we just look at Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? And how is it that he gives us life? Talk to me afterwards. Talk to somebody here in the church afterwards. We'd love to set that up for you. Of course, and this is not what the sermon is about, but I would be remiss if I didn't say this is why, in the end, Christians hold human life precious, sacred. It's not just that God created human life. Of course, that alone would be enough for us to talk about the sanctity of human life, but it's so much more. God himself assumed human life and so has invested it with his own person, with an unspeakable dignity and sacredness. And it is why we as Christians believe that we should treat all human life, including unborn life, as sacred. Authentic Christianity is an apostolic message, authoritative, historical, about Jesus, fully God and fully man, And third, when we receive that message, that message brings us into fellowship. It's a message that brings us into fellowship. Look at verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. The reason John and the apostles declare their message is so that we can be brought into fellowship with them. Now, fellowship is one of those, you know, strange Christian words that gets thrown around a lot. Nobody's quite sure what it means. It's, if you've been around church for any length of time, it seems to have something to do with potlucks and basements and small talk because you're always hearing preachers talking about fellowship meals and fellowship halls and sticking around after the service for some fellowship. Meals, basements, and small talk. In fact, fellowship has nothing to do, or at least certainly not primarily to do, with food or buildings or social gatherings. When the New Testament talks about fellowship, it means possessing something in common with others. It means, it means being united. It, it means participating together in something. So when we talk about fellowship, we're actually talking about union and communion together. 
Now, we're going to look at what we possess in common together in just a minute, but I want to pause here and just observe that according to John, authentic Christianity is not a solo, private experience. It is, from the very beginning, a corporate experience. When we receive this message, we are brought into fellowship with the apostles. We are brought into fellowship with other Christians. That that means, definitionally, you cannot be a Christian alone. Now, you can be alone as a Christian. I could go stand in a room right behind here all by myself, and I would be alone and a Christian. But I can't be a Christian by myself. I cannot be a Christian alone, apart from others, because Christianity, this message, brings us into fellowship. It it, it is all about participating together in a common experience. It is all about holding together a common possession, and it begins with this apostolic message. We are brought into fellowship with the apostles when we receive, when we repent of our sins and believe, accept their testimony as as true. And so to depart from their message is to depart from Christianity. But it's not just the apostles. This, This carries on today into our fellowship with each other. This is what a church is. This is what it means to, to be part of a church. It's, it's not a building. It's not, it's not a list. It, it, it's not voting privileges. No, no, no. A, a church is all about a, a covenantal union of people gathered together through our fellowship in an apostolic message. That's what it means to be a part of a church, to have covenanted with others that we possess together this message. This is the message we confess together. This is the message we believe together. Now, there's a whole variety of Christians just sitting in this room. And we all have a variety of gifts, and we have a variety of experiences. But bottom line, there is a common experience that arises from a common message about Jesus that unites us together across our differences. And this is what marks us out as Christians. You know, people talk a lot about, to me anyway, they don't talk to you about this, but they talk to me a lot about how different my five children look, how when they, when they finally meet all five of my children, and since there are five of them, it takes a while, But once you've met all five of them, you find yourself thinking they look like they came from different families. And this is oftentimes uh, people's sort of first and strong reaction when when they meet my kids. But what I notice when I look at my kids is, is not how different they look, but what they hold in common. And, and fundamentally, that's, that's my name, right? Despite all of their differences, there is a fellowship of Lawrence that, that unites my five kids with me and with my wife. Well, it's, it's the same with Christians, you see. What's most significant about us is not our, our unique gifts. 
What's most important about us is not the, the diversity of our experience, though that all is there and it's good and it's wonderful and we can celebrate all of that. But no, what, what's, what's most significant about us is our common fellowship in the gospel. Which means if you're out there this morning and, and, you're, and you're playing it solo, you should stop. You should join a church. Because God means our fellowship in the church to be a primary means of assuring us that we are authentically Christian, that we are participating together in this common experience. Authentic Christianity is an apostolic message, historical and authoritative, about Jesus, the God-man, that brings us into fellowship. But not just fellowship with each other. Fourth, this message brings us into fellowship with God. It brings us into fellowship with God. Look again at the second half of verse 3. And our fellowship, that is the apostles' fellowship, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You know, we're used to hearing that the point and purpose of Christianity is salvation. But John doesn't put it in those terms here. John says that the point of the message that they're preaching is fellowship with God. Not salvation, but fellowship. Now, is, is, he, is he like contradicting Paul here? No, not at all. Actually, I think he's really getting at the point of salvation, right? Fellowship with God is what salvation is really all about. This is the good news of Christianity. All of us, by nature... And because of the choices we've made, are actually cut off from God. We're not in fellowship with him on our own by nature or by choice. We are at war with him. But the message about Jesus is that God has taken the initiative to do something about that problem. The Son of God took our flesh so that he could take our place. The Son of God took our flesh so that he could take our place. First, he took our place by, by living a life that was in perfect fellowship with God, the, the life that we should have lived but didn't. Then he died our death. He experienced on the cross the fullness of what it means to be cut off from God, separated from God, under God's judgment. But that's not where it ended. Because after he died, after he experienced our judgment, he got up from the dead. And now Jesus Christ is seated at God's right hand in perfect fellowship with the Father. So the result of this message about Jesus and what he has done is that all who put their faith in him are now brought into fellowship with God through him. We now get the fellowship with God that Jesus Christ himself has. Now, do you see the chain here that John is talking about? Through our fellowship with the apostles in their message about Jesus, we gain fellowship with Jesus, the Son of God. We have his life in us. We participate in his death for our sins. We participate in his resurrection to a new and eternal life. 
we gain his righteousness. And all of that is, all that, all that was his is now ours. Because all that was ours became his. And he bore it. But friends, what does the son have more than anything else? The son has perfect fellowship with the father. Oh, he has perfect fellowship with the father because the human life he lived gave no reason for there to be any disruption to that fellowship. But he also has perfect fellowship with the father because he has been with the father forever. He is fully God. And in the mystery of the Trinity, father and son have been united in fellowship from all eternity. This is what the Son has. And so if we have fellowship with the Son, then we have fellowship with the Father as well. This is the the message of Christianity, that we who were cut off from God can now have perfect fellowship with God through the Son. And it all happens as a result of repenting of our sins and receiving the apostolic message of what God has done through Jesus Christ. There is a chain here. It is a glorious chain. And it cannot be broken. Now, what does it mean to have fellowship with God? What could it mean that that we possess something in common with the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ? Well, it's not divinity. Some have taught that when when you become a a Christian, you actually begin this process of divinization. You're you're becoming divine. That's not what John refers to here. No, what it is that we possess in common with God, this fellowship with God, is, is life. Here's the incredible claim that that marks off authentic Christians from false claimants. Eternal life, the life of God himself, begins to well up from within the Christian. And and inevitably, of course, that life is going to look different from the life of this world, which in so many ways is like a cheap, counterfeit knockoff, right? Now, I, I don't want to preach all of 1 John on this point. But, but, but it's hard not to, right? Because this, this is really where John's going to spend the rest of his letter. He's going to talk about what this life looks like in us. It, it, this, this eternal life, this, this God's life now in us, it's, it's a life of holiness because God is holy. And it is a life of love because God is love. And if you know the apostle's message and through that message know Christ, then friend, this is the life that is in you, that you should see welling up from within you, a life of holy love for God and for others. More on that in the coming weeks. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know that that inviting you to become a Christian, we're not inviting you to morality. We're not inviting you to conservative politics. We're we're not proclaiming a message of culture war. We're not proclaiming a message of social justice. We're proclaiming to you that you can have eternal life 
right now. Not just life forever, though life forever is included in this idea of eternal life. But no, right now, a whole different quality of life. God's life within you, starting today. And it begins simply by turning away from pursuing that old life that you were pursuing, that counterfeit life. Repenting of sin is the way we talk about it. And instead, putting your faith in the message that life comes through Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, let's not miss here in this verse the work of the entire Trinity. Our fellowship with God is the result of the Father initiating in love, the Son accomplishing the Father's plan, and the Spirit speaking the message, the the words of love that drew us in. Now, one of the things that that means is that if you want to grow in your fellowship with God, you must never divorce the Spirit from the Word. Fellowship with God does not happen apart from the Word. Now, now it's true. You, You can take the Bible and you can treat it as a textbook and you can fill your head with lots of theological facts about God and not really know God any better. That's true. You can do that. But it's not true that you can be too word-centered because God and his word are inseparable. And this is how he brings us into fellowship with him. Now, to illustrate it, take me for an example. Let's say you wanted to get to know me. I'm not saying you want to get to know me. And you talk to people who do know me and you might be convinced, yeah, you're right, I didn't want to get to know you. But let's say you did want to get to know me. And let's say, in order to get to know me, you decided, I'm going to spend an entire week with Michael, 24-7, by his side. That seems like a good, good way to get to know me, like you really invest a lot of time. But now let's say I decide for that week, I'm not going to utter a single word. I'm going to say nothing. I'm just going to go through my life, but say nothing. Or let's say I'm going to talk as normal, but you decide, I just want to spend time with you. I don't want to hear you. I'm putting earplugs in. That might be more likely. Now we're at the end of the week. Do you know me? Has your fellowship with me increased at all? No. Oh, you now know some facts about me that you observed. You saw some things. But chances are, many of the things that you think about me, because I didn't say anything, or if I did say it, you weren't listening, they're just kind of your speculation. You're trying to figure it out. You're you're probably wrong, actually, in your, your intuitions about me just on observation. Friends, intimacy happens through language. We share our hearts with someone by opening our mouths. And so it is with God. God has opened his heart to us. He has intimately shared his life with us, and he's done it through the word. He opened his mouth, and he has spoken by the Spirit and through the Son, as we have a record of it in the apostles and the prophets' prophets' writings. Do you want to grow in your fellowship with God? Do you want a more God-centered life? then make your life more word-centered. 
because God is sharing his heart with you through his mouth. And that, my friends, should lead us fifth and finally to joy. It should lead us to joy. Authentic Christianity is a message about Jesus that brings us into fellowship with God for our joy. Look at verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. The reason John proclaimed his message, the reason he writes this letter was so that he and those that he's writing to might have perfect or, or complete joy. Joy is what fellowship with God produces. And that's what he wants for himself, and that's what he wants for those that he's writing to. Now, what is joy? Is it a feeling? Is it an experience? You know, that's the, the dictionary definition. I, I went to the dictionary this week, and I looked up joy in, like, Merriam-Webster's and, and Oxford. And, and the dictionary definition of joy is an intense feeling of pleasure or ecstasy and the freedom to express it. That's the dictionary definition of joy. But it's not the Bible's definition of joy. The Bible's definition is different, and we know that because in Scripture, we are commanded to be joyful. We're commanded to be joyful, 1 Thessalonians 5.16. We also see in Scripture examples of this, this kind of commanded joy. The, the apostles rejoiced in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, after they had been flogged. Okay, their, bla- their backs are bleeding, and they are rejoicing. James tells us, James chapter 1, verse 2, count it pure joy when we face trials. All right, when you put things like that together, you realize that according to the Bible, joy isn't so much a feeling as it is a conviction and and, an assurance that regardless of how I feel and, and regardless of what my circumstances are, all is well, because I am in fellowship with God. That's what joy is in the Bible, a conviction, deep and settled assurance that all is well, because I am in fellowship with God. Now, you know, someday, my present joy that I have right now, that Scripture can command me to have and to express, my present joy and my emotional feelings of happiness and delight and gladness, someday those two are going to overlap perfectly. That day is the day I stand before God with all of my sin removed and my fellowship with him perfected. But today, in a fallen world and with a very incomplete sanctification... I cannot count on my joy spontaneously welling up through my emotions. I I just, I can't. Maybe you can, but I kind of doubt it. Instead, what I have to do, and what I think you have to do, is what John does here. I have to consider the message about Jesus and what it means for me, and not just for me, but but for all of us. I have to set my mind on this message and I have to allow the reality of what God has done, I have to allow that reality to contradict 
my experience. I have to allow that reality to contradict my emotions. And there I find joy. Now, friends, this has huge implications for our our lives individually. It has huge implications for our life together corporately and for our corporate worship together because our gatherings together should be gatherings of joy. Our gathering together to worship should be an opportunity for us to rejoice, right? To proclaim our joy, to express our joy. Now, this past week, and I don't do this very often, but I'm gonna gonna do this. This past week, I've had two conversations with people who are finding our corporate worship joyless. And I know they're not alone. Now, they're not everybody. And I know that's true because some of you are looking at me with a blank look on your face, like, what are they talking about? Many of you find our corporate worship together to be filled with joy and to be a powerful opportunity to express your joy, but some of you don't. And probably, if you're one of those that don't, it might mean that you're one of those who has lived through several pastors here at Henson, and I'm just the last in a long string of what you've experienced. So when I hear that you are not experiencing joy in our corporate worship together, I want you to know that that grieves me. I I, I feel that, and I do not want that to be. I don't want that to be for anybody. I want you to know that actually back even before I had these conversations, back uh, before Christmas, I, I began a conversation with some of the staff and some of the elders, some of us that are leaders up front, about this very issue. I, I want you to know that if there's anything I'm doing, or if there's anything that the leaders up front are doing that is hindering your joy in worship, we want to know about it and we want to address it. And we've already begun to try to think about how can we address that? Are there things that we're doing that's hindering your experience of joy in our corporate gathering? We want to address that. But I also want to say to you that you have a role in this too. And here I think what I have to say applies whether you're one of those that's feeling less joy in the worship service or you're one of those who are thinking, what in the world is he talking about? The worship service is full of joy. Because you see, it it just might be that for any of us, in any kind of circumstance, over the years, we begin to confuse a set of emotions that arise in response to a certain worship style as joy. And we begin to call those emotions and that experience joy. But given what I've already described given what John's done here, given the way the Bible talks about joy, you know in your head, I hope, that music and style cannot, cannot produce joy, at least Christian joy. Music and style cannot produce true Christian joy. I want to go a step further and say that music and style cannot even hinder true Christian joy. Why? Because authentic Christian joy, gospel joy, 
isn't the result of my feelings. It's the result of what John does here. It's the result of my mind considering the truth about the message of Jesus Christ and the confidence that that message applies to me no matter what, no matter what my circumstances are. My back could be bleeding, but my mind knows that that message about Jesus applies to me, and so I am filled with joy. We might be singing my favorite worship song, and actually, that's great, but that's not the point because that message about Jesus applies to me, and I am filled with joy. We might be singing my least favorite worship song, and you know what? It doesn't matter. Because in my mind, I know that that message about Jesus applies to me. And so I am filled with joy. Joy is found outside of me. It is found outside of myself, not in the internal experience of ecstatic emotion, but in the objective external reality of what God has done in bringing me, of all people, into fellowship with him, the creator of the universe. And not just me, but as we look around this room, we see that he's done that for each other. And so my joy is augmented, not because of the song, not despite the song, but because I see Ben and Carlin, I, I, I see David and Helen, I see John and Lillian, I see Jim and Terry, I, I see the Caffles, I see a bunch of the college students over there, and I realize, oh my goodness, God has brought us, even us, into fellowship with him because of the message of Jesus Christ. And nothing can get in the way of that. Nothing. This is why in our corporate worship, the leaders up front don't expend much energy trying to work you up into an emotional state. No, we're trying to do something very different through the preaching, through the prayers, through the words of Scripture and the songs, really in everything, we're trying to break through the fog of imitation that this world gives us. And we're trying to get your mind engaged because through your mind, we engage your heart with the truth of the gospel. We want to rehearse the gospel together from every angle we can think of so that our fellowship with God through Jesus Christ grows and our joy grows with it. Imitation joy comes from style and it's fleeting. Real joy comes from the truth of the gospel and it cannot be touched, not even by your poor pastor. I began by asking the question, how can we know that we are experiencing authentic Christianity? And here's the answer. What gives you joy today? If it's not Jesus, or if it's Jesus plus something else, then friend, You have bought a pretty imitation, just like my watch. Jesus is the genuine article. Do not settle for anything less. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are astounded that you would take initiative towards us. We are astounded that you would go to such lengths to bring us into an experience of your life. Father, we pray that we would have eyes to see Jesus. We pray that you would give us a taste for that life, that we would hunger after it and pursue it through every means that you make possible. And we pray that that life would be evident in our lives individually and corporately as we proclaim to the world this is what authentic Christianity is all about. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.